Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Thanks very much, Mike. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Um, Bringing a word from me is very much done with a sense of it being a conversation, even though I'm the one that's doing most of the talking. But I want to encourage you to feel free to be a little Baptocostal this morning and uh, feel free to give me an amen if you agree with something or uh, shake your head or look bitter and twisted if you don't agree. Um, But it's really nice to be sharing with you this morning and I want to thank Mike for the invitation. It's always great to worship together with uh, anyone of our family churches and one of the things I've really appreciated about stepping out of local church ministry just day to day has been the opportunity to get out and about and see what God is up to in various faith communities and expressions around Adelaide. In one of the scriptures that is more famous than perhaps many others and familiar especially for lovely folks such as yourselves, the sort of folk who worship together on a Sunday, in the book of Samuel, which I understand you've been in, we find a famous tale of that spokesman of God in the ancient Near East. Around about 1,000 years before Jesus, this prophet is instructed by God to anoint the next king of Israel. As the prophets seemed to have at that time, the instructions were very clear. He was to go to Bethlehem to the house of a man named Jesse. Jesse is pleased to receive a visit from the prophet. This is quite the honour. Perhaps, I imagine, even more pleased to learn that one of his sons will be king. And in what reads to me as if it forms the structure for what Modern-day beauty pageants are modelled on. One after the other come these burly young men displaying their various talents. Imagine Jesse there. May I present Ahmed? He likes a sea breeze and a sense of humour. Samuel isn't impressed with these specimens of masculinity. And it's here for the first time that the famous words are said that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's such a significant scripture to the whole sweep of the biblical narrative that when preaching more than a thousand years later, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, is doing apologetics in one of his first messages when he's putting the whole story together. He quotes the same words that God said about David. I have found in David a man after my heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. 
The logical question to ask is, of course, as a man after God's heart, what is that heart? How would it be described? Well, the wonderful thing about Scripture is that while the books of history, like Samuel, tell the story from an external view looking inward, David's incredible poetry in the Psalms led us into his interior world looking outwards. It's a very whole picture. And it's in the Psalms that David's incredible poetry gives explicit answers to that question of what is God's heart like. David spends a lot of time describing the character of God. Among other things, here are some big ones. He describes God often as worthy, worthy of his praise, worthy of his worship. Regardless of what's going on in his life, David always brings, nearly always brings a, but yet, I will praise the Lord, regardless of his circumstances. He describes Yahweh as his stronghold. To whom else but God are often David's words of worship in reference to where he finds his safety. He experiences God's very nature as good and kind and expressed through loving kindness. Thank you for that. Long ruminations on the character of God lead him to understand God as forgiving and merciful and steadfast in his very being. So you can see in this regard to the Psalms, we are given a window to the relationship, the same sameness between God's heart and David's. And so I would posit to you that it's through learning to pray the Psalms that we actually learn to pray honestly before God. All of the Psalms are worth paying attention to. The Psalms of lament and complaint as well as worship and praise and thanksgiving. The Psalms as well as the story of David Give us an archetypical illustration of David's heart and also God's heart. And you look like a smart congregation of people. Thank you. I'm getting an amen to that. That's good. It's from one of your paid staff, so that doesn't count. But I'm sure that you know what the word archetype means, yeah? The idea of archetypes was made famous uh, by the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, a word that means a similar thing as trope or type. Uh, archetypes are simply defined as universal inborn models of people, behaviours, personality that play a role in influencing human behaviour. Archetypes are a way that information about what mankind is actually like uh, are passed down through characters in stories. Archetypical characters can be found in all of the texts of the world's major religions. Christianity isn't alone in this. 
But David as an archetype is worth considering, and there are many stories about David that can be understood as archetypical. Here's what I mean if you're a little bit confused. An archetypical story of small triumphing over big makes you think immediately of what? David and Goliath. A quintessential story of adultery makes you think of what in regards to David? Correct. You're with me. It's fantastic. I knew you were smart. So today's task, the question I want to explore that I hope is helpful is that through a reflection of just some, just some of the life and words of this deeply archetypical man, David, I want to ask what might be found out about the ways in which David's heart and thus his lived life might represent a heart orientated like God's is to ours. What stories add up to demonstrate this reality? And following this, how might we think about the right orientation of our own hearts? How might we reflect on the way that they come to this place, their condition today? Represented by how we act, how we speak, but also how we fail to act and speak at times. And even perhaps on the road back to God, when we find ourselves sensing distance, what is it that David's story has to offer us as the way back to God, as the way back to the restoration of right relationships? Does that sound all right? Does it sound okay? All right, why don't we just take a minute to pray? Is that all right? Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, this word you've given us is an incredible thing. And there's some reflections sitting here in front of me on your words. May you, by the power of your spirit, as only you can do, do what only you can do and illuminate that word for us and draw us closer into your kingdom and fill us with a sense of life overflowing, life truly to the full as you promised is available to us. May that become a tangible reality today and in the days following today. Jesus' name, we ask these things sincerely. Amen. One way of working a concept through like this is to first of all flip it, right? If we know that David had a heart after God's own heart, well, what would a heart look like that wasn't like God's own heart? Was there someone else from around the same time who was there in David's early story who sort of is the compare and contrast character to David. Yes, of course there is. This was the man who was king right before him, and this was King Saul. And at one point in this story, when the lives of David and Saul become intertwined with one another, but traveling in very different directions, Scripture tells us this significant differentiation. That in everything David did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. 
When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Like David, King Saul is also a type, a representation of a particularity of the human condition. Saul is a trope of unmet desire, of wanting and wanting more. But the question that comes about looking at Saul in Scripture is, what is it that the wanting wanted? Saul's life is in some senses an exploration of the idea that the only thing worse than not actually getting what you want in life is getting exactly what you want. Saul is the embodiment of the phrase in some senses, be careful what you wish for. Saul, is, have we got any fans of musical theatre in the house this morning? Yeah, anybody seen Hamilton either in person or on Disney over lockdown? Hands up if you've seen Hamilton. Yeah, there's a few hands up there. Yes, Saul is sort of like the biblical Hamilton. I will never be satisfied. He will never be satisfied. Sorry. Saul, always wanting more than he was, always wanting God to do what he was doing faster than he was doing it. And in this one place where the story sheds light on the mischief of the human heart and of our propensity as human beings to judge other people by their actions, the story of Saul in contrast to David represents the fact that we often judge ourselves by our intentions. Because when you read this story, what you find is that Saul's heart towards God and towards David, who was Saul's servant, was turned away from God and away from David long before he was ready to admit it. The idea that we come to fear those of whom we are jealous or whom we are different to or who threaten us is not new. And it's not without consequence. It's deeply embedded in the theory of warfare. That is where the sentiment of jealousy and enmity leads. You know, it was arguably the fathers of Britpop themselves, the prolific 80s band, The Smiths. Any Smiths fans here? (laughs) No one ready to admit it, maybe. Um, Who were at least honest enough to pen this sentiment in a song. We hate it when our friends become successful. Many people are accursed in their life by a poor sentiment towards their fellow human beings. And not just those they're different to, even those that they would call their friends. And for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things that this story does is lead us to recognize that we must never mistake arrogance or enmity for another human being or group of human beings as representatives of God's heart. Remember, God makes all mankind in his image. We need to recognize that when we judge others for any reason, especially when we don't know them or have any knowledge of their story, we immediately set up an us and a them. That is untrue at its most base theological level of both being made in the image of God. 
You know, the reality of human life, and perhaps nothing has taught us better than this, taught us better this reality than this era of COVID in which we find ourselves, in which we're all trying to navigate our way out of. We're, of course, all in the soup together. We're all in this together. Has anyone heard that recently? <laughs> right? We're all in this together. It's a nice sentiment, but when you actually stop and realize the reality of that lived experience, it's actually really difficult to live all together, isn't it? I think that perhaps uh, the author who has expressed this better than anyone else I know, maybe the greatest novelist of all time, arguably, Dostoevsky in The Brothers Karamazov writes this. He says, in most cases... People, even the most vicious, are much more naive and simple-minded than we assume them to be. Now, before you shout amen to that, this isn't the end of the quote, because the great Russian finishes the chapter, the same is true of ourselves, too. As the first major point to take away this morning, and in thinking about God's heart and David's heart and our heart in its orientation, it may be too general of a question and a question that you may have been asked too many times in church to consider in a meaningful way. Hey, how's your heart today? So let me ask you something a bit more specific. How do you respond at a gut level when others around you succeed? What's the knee-jerk reaction? Only you can answer that. I'm going to take it a step further from the inference of the story. Saul feared David because of his success. What is it about other success that we might fear? Is it something that we might be worried about that we have not achieved, not done, not become, i.e. we're worried about our inadequacies? And what do we do with those? Now, everyone has fears. That's very human. But some are worth paying attention to. And the reasons why jealousy and envy are worth paying attention to and watching particularly is because of their capacity to do great damage to our lives, but also because when brought up into the light, when spoken out, when recognised by fellow human beings in prayer to God, exposing them to God's love, which is his light, his illumination, his salt, his healing flavour. It might sting a little bit to do that. But this is where our wounds, our resentments, our bitterness can have the opportunity to heal. Amen. It's one of the primary ways we experience the healing heart of God, not as a concept, but as a, a, a lived reality that brings true freedom to us. The way that God's love is allowed to be not just a concept in our heads, but in our hearts, in our memories, as a healing balm. There's another archetypical reality to David's story that sets a scene as well, a precedent for the way that Jesus comes to us, and it's worth paying attention to as well, and that's in recognising that David is presented to us in Scripture as a shepherd. David was a shepherd. 
And there was an inherent humility in being a shepherd. If we look at the story in which David actually rose to prominence in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, he has been anointed prior to this, but this is just prior to the story of David and Goliath. Uh, and it says, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and handsome. Sorry, this is just when he is being anointed. Um, I've always found this particular scripture intriguing because it says that he was ruddy and handsome. I'm still not particularly sure what ruddy means, but the scripture also goes on to say, and he had beautiful eyes, which I think is worth noting in scripture. (laughs) Why don't you just take a moment and just turn to the person next to you and just look deep into their eyes for a second. Go on, go and do that. And you'll actually notice something which is nearly always true. The, the eyes are a beautiful thing, an amazing creation. David had beautiful eyes, but he was a shepherd, a ruddy, beautiful-eyed shepherd. It's worth noting this. You see, being a shepherd was David's lot because he was the youngest. It was the bottom of the bottom of the jobs in the family pecking order. It was a blue-collar blue-robed job, perhaps. I say this because I want to note that even today when you meet men and women who work the land, you know, far from here in suburbia, and all you need to do is shake my hand to realise I certainly don't work the land. I'm not <laughs> my son says to me the other day, Dad, you've got really soft skin on your hands. I'm like, that's not a compliment, son. <laughs> Maybe people who would, have, would also still be described as ruddy are people, I imagine, who wear the results of their vocation on their face. People familiar with the land, the weather, the seasons, the terrain. You know, people whose skin is like the colour of nicotine and earwax mixed together. Just trying to get the creative thoughts thinking. Shepherds were people familiar with places of shelter, of food. They knew places of danger. They knew places where bandits might lie. They were, play, they were people who were likely appreciators of natural ecosystems and natural beauty. They were people who had to have the capacity not just to be protectors, but people of great tenderness and care. The trope, the type of a shepherd pops up again and again in Scripture. It's not insignificant that some of the first recipients of the gospel message of God's coming, God to be with us at Christmas, Emmanuel, were shepherds. Why was that worth recording? Because they were the least likely people to be the first thought to be deserving of receiving the message of the gospel. Not much later, it's Jesus himself who types himself as the good shepherd. He said, my sheep know me and know my voice. Shepherds were and still are very useful, knowledgeable, pragmatic, tender and fierce people. It's no wonder that the type pops up again as a key role in the leadership of the church. But let me note, not the only role in the leadership of the church. 
Paul says in Ephesians, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. The pastors is actually this Greek word, poimenos. Let's say that with me, poimenos. Poimenos, it actually quite literally translates to shepherd. And so this story, this look at David as an archetype, asks of us, of what are we shepherds? What has God given you to steward? What is yours to look after and look after well this side of eternity? Now, it sounds really cuddly. Oh, I'd like to be a shepherd. They're sheep are cute. They run around and they're fluffy. Thing is, though, you look at David's life and you look at his qualifications for going to fight Goliath, and he says to Saul, he says, you know, being a shepherd... It's not all cuddles. I've been fighting bears and lions for a long time. When they take my sheep, I chase after them, and I kill them, and I drink their blood. That might be a paraphrase. Um, I'm trying to say that the role of a shepherd is not just one of responsibility. It's of strength and wisdom. And knowing the times in life where we're presented with the opportunity to advocate for and stand for that which is truly good and right in the world, there are times to stand up and fight for what is true. This is why Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy, these really significant words are not words just for pastors of churches, though. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life. Watch your life. It counts. It matters. Watch what you think. What we've got here is, with great clarity, express the significance of calling. And I just want to stop here for a second, folks, this morning. Because I want to put it out there in a way that was put out there when I was a child, not even a child, when I was a teenager. I was blessed to have leaders and mentors that exemplified the reality that a life in service to God's mission in the world and care for his people was captivating. And the question was asked of me, Here's a, there's a possibility that, that God might be laying on his heart for you to become a pastor of his people. This is a, a calling. And I'm not saying a great calling or a better calling. It was a calling that was presented as a viable option amongst other callings. We don't do that much these days. And I want to ask the question of you that maybe God has been nudging you, leading you towards a life, a vocation, training, getting ready to lead his people in communities of faith. And if that is you today, I would love to pray with you. would love to explore that with you. We are an association of churches that are absolutely keen to see people raised and trained for servants with a heart after God's own. And if that's not you, please join with me in prayer for the raising up of those people.
Humility of the heart, the shepherd's heart, leads to or goes hand in hand with another archetypical reality of David's heart after God's a characteristic we see in Jesus as well. And perhaps one that has something of great importance to say to us, especially in today's day and age of intense anxiety. And it's this, that David's heart was a heart that had come to grips with the realities of God-given limits in his life, of boundaries. You see it in all sorts of ways in the late life of David. You see it in his words, just a couple to consider. Couldn't get any more explicit than this. He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, O Lord. Surely you have an inheritance for me that is wonderful. This, David, is your role. These people, not this. It's interesting to me that even as a man recognised as being a man of bloodshed and of war, which is its own discussion and exploration, but he knew there were realities that were God-ordained that he dare not transgress. So much so that even in perhaps one of my most favourite comedic comedic texts in the scripture that even when his enemy Saul is delivered into his hands, Saul goes into a cave at one point to, well, take a break. Uh, It's a cave where David is hiding. Saul goes in to relieve himself and David could quite easily have slain him, but David doesn't and instead cuts off a corner of his cloak, which is really fascinating in the way it sort of translates into English, but commentator after commentator that I read in reference to that story recognised that what David is saying is, I cut off your, the corner of your cloak, but I could have cut off something else. But David did not do this because David recognised that the person who was anointed king by God, was not to be touched. This was not a man who committed violence against. Jesus himself, of course, comes as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But how does Jesus do that? He does that through the very specific story of Israel. And he's clear about his vocation a number of times. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is not trying to be every place, everything, all the time, to everyone. Read your Gospels again during these school holidays. Take note of the fact that Jesus is never frantic. He's often going from one place to another, but he's never anxious and worried. Dallas Willard was asked, can you describe Jesus' character in one word? And he thought about this for a while, the great philosopher, and he said, yeah, relaxed. Is that the image that you've got of Jesus? Save maybe for the passion narratives, but throughout the rest of the stories, he's at ease in the world, even in the midst of catastrophe. Relax. We all have limits, folks. That's what I want to draw your attention to, is that we have limits we live within, the limits of our bodies and the challenges they represent, the limits of the laws of nature, the ones that can't be broken, gravity, time, the West Australian border. (laughs) 
unless it's for an AFL final. What are your limits, folks? What are your boundaries? Your husband, your wife, your job, your children. The way we regard limits is also a question of stewardship, stewarding what God has given us. This idea of contentment is a deeply Christian idea. It's an idea that rails against the idea of unmitigated growth. Have you ever noticed how the narrative that comes to us from the news, night in, night out, especially in regards to the economy, what a terrible thing it is that the economy might be shrinking. Who said so? This is why the famous words of Paul, that godliness with contentment is great gain, made their way into Scripture as well. God's deepest heart for us, I'm sure, is that at some level we are to know our place and not someone else's. As the Catholic mystic Paulo Coelho explores in The Alchemist, everything is one thing and not another. As we consider this reality, consider the sobering side-by-side reality about David's moral failure that was mentioned earlier, his fall from grace is also a story about the transgression of limits. As I said, the story of Bathsheba and David is also archetypical of the sobering fact that it doesn't matter who you are or how faithful you have been for how long. If we don't pay attention to the God-given limits of our lives and remain vigilant in observing the gift of those, not as a matter of duty or rule-keeping, but as gratitude, that this is a framework for living my best life, we can all let our guard down. We're all human. The story of David and Bathsheba is well known not just because it's biblical, but because it is indeed archetypical of how one deception leads to another, of how anxiety about the exposure of that deception can lead to nothing short of death. David and Bathsheba as a story begins by telling us that it occurs at the times when kings went off to war. There was somewhere David should have been and he wasn't. Instead, David is at home in the palace and he's tempted to utilise his power to obtain instant gratification. And we know the story well, probably, that he sleeps with this woman that he is lusting over and she becomes pregnant. And so he orders her husband back from the front lines of war where he is serving back to town so that his sin might be covered up. But the soldier, this man, the husband, is such a dutiful man that he won't go home. He'll sleep outside on the steps rather than forsake his oath, his commitment to his nation in service in the military. And in the end, David commits murder to cover up his own sin. And this is the remarkable place where it seems that the praise and beauty and 
transcendent, soaring quality of David's psalms suddenly disappear and make way for the poetry that we might be more familiar with of Leonard Cohen. When he says, well, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof and her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. Definitely not going to attempt singing that song. But the archetype of the mighty falling from grace doesn't stop there, of course. And that's really good news. Because there is repentance for David. There is a return to his vocation as a poet. It's after having his sin exposed when he writes the psalm made famous by the late, great Keith Green, when he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There is forgiveness. There's even redemption. But there is also consequence. There's reality to face up to. And if you're wondering about that call to pastoral ministry, well, what actually does it mean to be a pastor? I mean, maybe you've got that question. I want to know that before I put my hand up for it. I mean, there are some pastors, like Mike, that work one day a week. That's good for some. Um, these days. Oh, is it two? What is it? Oh, you're going part-time these days. Anyway, if your senior pastor wouldn't keep going on, you know, exorbitant holidays. Dan, I hope you're watching. That's right at you, buddy. What we're trying to do, folks, in communities of faith is face the reality of the gift of our existence in all that it presents and all its challenges and to build hope through the power of the gospel. Face reality and build hope. That's it. It's a good gig. So my challenge, my question for you today is to ask that if for you, if you are in the muck today, if you're struggling, if you're watching this online, hear the contrite words of David's psalm and pray them for yourself if you need to. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. God is faithful and just and forgives our sin and restores us. This is the good news of the gospel. So friends, the encouragement today has been to ask you to reflect on your hearts and if necessary, by virtue of considering how it is you respond when others succeed or do better than you even. How does that make you feel? It's also been art to ask you if you, who it is and what it is that you are responsible to and for in your life. To pay attention to that. What are you stewarding? How's that going for you? Do you need help? And it's also been to ask you about your boundaries, about knowing your limit and playing within it. No, that sounds like an ad from a gambling corporation. Never mind. But seriously, there's a consequence to all our actions, all our choices. And those choices, the gift of a faith community is we get to make those choices together. And I think the truth is that to some extent, when we run the ruler of examine 
over our lives when those times are there for us that we can say with some level of integrity that my heart is truly chasing God, I've got clear who and what I'm responsible for. This is the life of the happiest man that is presented to us in the first psalm. This is good, and if this is you today, fantastic. May you be an inspiration in the expression of your life today. My favourite poet, Wendell Berry, says, be joyful because it is humanly possible. It is humanly possible, and we should be joyful when life is presenting us with the opportunity to do so. That's not always the reality, though. There was a time, of course, where David danced recklessly before the Ark of the Covenant. And I don't know if he ever did again in the same way after Bathsheba, but Scripture does tell us that he finished his life at peace with God. And that's really what today's message is more than anything else. Is if you take nothing else away from this excursus, I just want to ask that in that place in your heart, in your soul, where deep calls to deep, is there peace there? Because it is available to us and it's free. But in doing our part in meeting a doing our part in moving into a relationship of peace, it sometimes requires us to name what it is that keeps us from that peace. Mike mentioned that for um, a couple of, a few years I pastored, I was a youth pastor in Canada and then I was a pastor for two years with many folks who were uh, in the world of homelessness, mental illness, uh, addiction to various substances of one kind or another. It was a gift of a couple of years, recognising the brokenness of all humanity. Uh, I had the opportunity to engage with those in various expressions of the recovery movement during that time pastoring. And, and, and if you've never been to an AA meeting or an NA meeting or whatever AA meeting, just as an exploration of what it means to actually front up honestly, show up honestly before God, I want to encourage you to do so. Regardless of whether that's an issue for you or not, because some of the things that are said and expressed and prayed in those meetings hold the deep ring of gospel truth. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a, there's a prayer that is often read to finish meetings, and it says this. It says, I think I've got it up on the screen there, if you could put it up. And it says this in the big book, it says, remember, we remember that we deal with, and they would say alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful, without help it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power, that one is God, may you find him now. Now, alcohol may not be the thing that has captured a corner of your heart and kept you from realising the fullness of relationship that is available to you in Christ. For some of us who are, well, in all sorts of different walks of life, it might be bitterness. It might be jealousy. It might be distraction. 
It might be pornography. It might be obsession with making more money. My experience has led me to believe that this is a prayer that all of us can pray that sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul when he prayed, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. Who will save me from this body of death? We have stuff in our life that is too powerful for us to combat on our own. We need help. That help is available through God. It's available through the community of faith. We don't have to do life alone if that's you struggling today. I'm sure there are people here from a prayer team that would love to pray with you. Again, I'd love to be my privilege and honour to pray with you. So remember, folks, that we deal with our humanity. That humanity gets broken. Remember, we deal with sin. Cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May we all find him now. Grace and peace. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.